know this frugal stuff it's not really that sexy on the face of it but you know it's actually really quite important to me like I actually really think that living within my means respecting the things I have living sustainably they're actually values that are actually really important to me. G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Serena Bird describes herself as the joyful frugalista, somebody who focuses on living frugally but living well. It's so much in the spirit of the Good Life podcast that I wanted to talk to her about her new book and the tips that she offers to many other people about how to stretch your money further but not have your misery go up. Serena, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you so much for having me on here. So what is a frugalista? Mm, well, for starters, they're not someone who's miserly, miserly, painful to be around. It's someone who really values and respects their money and thinks critically about how they spend their money. They don't waste things, they're not luxurious. Mm. I think back to my nana who um, is going to be 99 in June um, and her generation that grew up through the Great Depression in Australia and then World War II, they were very careful with how they spent their money. Uh, she used to wash and reuse Glad Wrap, which we always used to kind of laugh wow. at. But these days, there's a whole you know move in the sustainability community for not using Glad Wrap at all because it's just not easy to break down. It's not a, a sustainable um, resource. So I sort of see frugal, a frugalista is someone who really, I guess, is very appreciative of what they do have, mm. really values what they, they have and understands that it's actually people and community and experiences and connectedness that's actually more important than the stuff. Mm. We, my, uh, gra- grandfa- my, my grandfather grew up through the Great Depression or both sets of grandparents grew up mm. through the Great Depression and that seemed to massively affect the way in which my parents felt about money. And uh, I remember my dad always trying to scrape the last bit of peanut butter mm. out of the jar. Um, so I sort of turned it into a bit of a game with my boys where it's, it's about, you know, we're going <laughs> to see how much peanut butter we can get out of here. Uh, so it's a little bit less sort of painful and a little bit, a little bit more of a, uh, of a let's, let's, let's make it joyful, but let's also not leave huge gobs of peanut butter in the, uh, in the jar as we throw out the bin. Look, I'm exactly the same. In fact, I've got a mini spatula that works really well for <laughs> peanut butter, veggie Vegemite and um, Nutella and with Vegemite you can put hot water in afterwards and get the last remains out and put it into a soup so it's quite nice for a soup stock. That's clever. So I hear you and what I also have believe it or not is a, um, a toothpaste squeezer. So when I lived in Taiwan I bought them two of them for about equivalent to 50 cents Australian and it just helps to squeeze those last bits of the toothpaste out before you <laughs> cut the end off and use them. Now you might laugh but you know wastage is a very serious issue like when mm. we're talking about food waste um, they believe that about one in five bags of shopping are wasted and obviously that has a huge impact on um, the climate um, on climate change it's not just you know the greenhouse gas emissions from that which is significant but it's also the landfill issue so the more we can do to appreciate what we have and use that last scary the better what's the difference between a frugalista and a scrooge mm, i think we all know scrooges <laughs> You know them because they you don't like them. Um, and why you don't like them is because they're the ones who kind of are fairly self-centred and they just want to get that last bit for them. Like if you go out to dinner with them, they'll be the ones who order the steak and the prawn cocktail and then will say, oh, let's split the bill, even though they know you've just had a salad. So that's kind of a Scrooge. Like a Scrooge is sort of... Uh, verging on unethical, I think, in some ways. I mean, the character obviously comes from Charles Dickinson's uh, novel, Mm. um, what is it, The Christmas Carol, Mm. so Ebenezer Scrooge. And I think it is interesting to go back to that original character because he was just mean and nasty. And, you know, it wasn't just that he didn't spend money. He also did not want to spend time with his family on Christmas Day. 
So it wasn't just the money and, and the expenditure. He just really cut himself off from, from family and society and community. And you talk a lot about in your book about how to uh, go out and have have fun and how to throw mm-hmm. a, an economical dinner party and mm-hmm. the joy seems to be really important to how you characterise thinking about money. Um, yeah, very much so. I mean, I think I'm very blessed. Um, you know, I, I'm middle class and so I do definitely come at this from a position of privilege. And I think that's important to note because not everyone is in that situation and as the economy is turning a little bit, and I know you're an economist, you're probably much better able to assess what's happening with the economy than I am, but it does seem to me that a lot of families are really struggling right now. Mm. So I do come to this, like I said, from a position of privilege. Um, But I think rather than worrying about what we don't have, rather than thinking, oh, I should have a bigger house um, because that way we'd be happier as a family, or we should have the latest electronic toys to keep my kids happy, happy, or we should have expensive holidays to Disneyland, that'll keep you know my family happy, or I should be wearing designer clothes, that'll make me look successful. I think it's good to just stop and look at where I am with gratitude and be really mm. happy for that. You talk about the importance of tracking your spending for a mm. month. What does, what does someone get out of the incredibly painful exercise <laughs> of having to write down absolutely everything they, uh, they, they spend? It's one of those things I've, I've often thought about yeah. doing, but I confess I've never, never managed to do. Well, it is changing a bit now because there's so many electronic ways to do that. And, um, you know, I was even just thinking today how we are really going cashless more and more. Mm. It's certainly when you're paying for cash, with cash a lot more, it's just your money tends to leak out and you don't really know where it's gone and it's hard to track. Um, when things are done through electronic means, at least you get a list, you get your credit card mm. bill, you know, if you have credit card bill or um, afterpay, um, that you can see where you spend things on. But it makes it even easier <laughs> to spend. So it's a bit of a trick. But the whole exercise is really one of what I would term mindfulness. So it's not hopefully not one of guilt it's not like oh gosh now i'm going to have to feel guilty because i've bought a pair of shoes it's you write it down and then at the end of the month you can look at it and go oh so that explains where my money's gone because i bought a pair of shoes and i did this and i did that so that's what you get from it you get the mindfulness of thinking through your purchases um, without guilt and then to think about whether that resonates with your values and where you've wanted to spend those money that money Mm. on your mum was a fashion designer, That's right. uh, so uh, you've got uh, strong insights into thinking about <laughs> buying clothes. What are your tips on uh, on spending spending well in the clothing domain? Well, I think the main thing this is speaking particularly um, for women is to understand what suits you as a person. Like I'm five foot tall. I'm definitely not a size eight. So if I was trying to think about you know what would be sold. Uh, to a a younger woman in their their 20s that looks good on a size 10 model. It's not going to suit me. It's just not going to work. So I think that's the first thing is to understand, you know, what you look like physically and what's actually going to look good on you and not to try and uh, model yourself on someone else Mm. who's a completely different body shape. And then I think the next thing is to think about, well, what occasion are you going to? Like, I wouldn't have turned up here today in a ball gown. Like, it might look nice, a ball gown and a tiara, but I'm sure I get a lot of stares <laughs> so walking around the office. So to think about the appropriateness of the event that you're going to and tailor what you wear accordingly. I think for guys, it's a bit easier. Like, you have a sense of what the dress sense is. If you're going in an office, it's usually, you know, suit and tie. If you're going to the beach, it's something different. Mm. But for women, it's actually a lot harder to actually gauge the appropriateness. Did your mum buy uh, a lot of uh, used clothes? No, no, she wasn't a huge op shopper, but she did, where she was very good is, particularly when she was travelling overseas in Asia, she'd often buy things that were a lot cheaper, like not necessarily nasty cheap, but she had an eye for style. Mm. So she would often sort of get a sense of, well, that's sort of a cheap coordinate, uh, coordinating piece. I can mix that back with something else. And even now she'll she'll buy things and she'll alter it. She'll go, well, that's sort of nice, but I really wanted it a different way. So she'll alter it for her shape. My sister, however, is an amazing op shopper. She is just like fantastic. Um, she's amazing. And she's just um, admitted to me that she's now been influenced by me. I'm not sure if this is a good thing or not. And she's not going to buy any op shop clothes or any new, new clothes for a whole year. Mm. And I say, I'm not sure if this is a good thing or not, because her name's Spring. And I often refer to her wardrobe as Spring's Boutique because we're the same size and I'm a very um, lucky recipient of a lot of her clothes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, but I'm very happy for her too that she's thinking about different ways to to shop. Mm. And you uh, you talk too about the virtues of black and white. You're uh, you're wearing black and white to the, to the, today. Uh, <laughs> uh, why uh, why should why should uh, people think about buying uh, buying black and white? What's the advantage there? Well, um, and I'll go back one step and say that um, I think nearly everything I'm wearing today, except for my necklace, was actually from for free. That um, mm. the dress was given to me by my sister. Uh, my black jacket uh, was through a clothes swap. Uh, the earrings were a gift. Um, so. You know, definitely you can. Well, hopefully I, I look okay. I'm, we're doing a podcast. Absolutely. So I'm just going to pretend I'm really stylish. You, no you look extraordinarily stylish. Anyway. Um, but, you know, I, I think um, you can actually dress well and without actually having to spend a lot of money. But the thing with black and white is it's stylish. It's stylish and it's elegant. So it's hard to, hard to get wrong. I do wear other colours <laughs> as well. But black and white are really easy to pair with other colours. In terms of uh, how you uh, how you shop for food, do you uh, uh, have any particular tips there? Um, house, uh, we've got three little boys. We end up uh, s- spending more and more on food as they get bigger and bigger. I can uh, what do you recommend for uh, for households looking at uh, saving there? Well, there's a lot of ways to save on on household food, food um, and groceries, and this is a really big one because this is becoming an increasingly large and and important cost. For a lot of families, especially with the drought, which is still hasn't been broken mm. everywhere across Australia yet, we're a bit shocked. We've just done a driving trip down to Melbourne to see the amount of areas that are still quite dry, um, coupled with the bushfires um, and a few other things. Uh, I think food and grocery costs are, are going to go up. I think that's just unavoidable. Mm. There's been so many food affected, uh, food growing areas that have been affected by these series of, of crises. So there's a, a lot of things that um, families can do. And I guess the biggest one is to reduce the amount of waste. So food waste, as I mentioned mm. before, is, is a huge issue. So that's easier said than done. We're all busy people. We're sort of, um, you know, many families are going shopping on Saturdays where they're a bit sleep exhausted with kids in tow and they're just kind of putting everything in the trolley and, and coping uh, the best they can. But the more that you can write a list before you go, like we have in our kitchen, we have a book and every time we notice um, we've run out of cheese or we've run out of muesli or whatever it is, we write it down. So then you know exactly what you need and that prevents you going back into the supermarket again. Because every time you go in the supermarket, you spend more money. So the more of those kind of trips you can reduce, the better. Um, Meal plan, it doesn't have to be really, really serious and set in stone, but just having a think about what you're going to eat that week. So then you don't panic, you don't get to Thursday and think there's no, no food in the house, we've got to make another supermarket trip. That really helps. That then means you're more focused when you're in the supermarket. Because supermarkets are designed to get you distracted so you mm. spend more. <laughs> so you do have to be a little bit a bit savvy and have a bit of a plan in mind, um, even, even if it's not a perfectly formed one uh, before you go in there. So that's really important too. And I think with busy families, the more cooking you can do on the weekend, the better it sets you up for the week. Now, this isn't to be slavish about it and say, you must spend all Saturday and Sunday in the kitchen. But, you know, just having a bit of a family routine, maybe say Sunday night where, you know, if you've got a roast on, um, now that we're getting into cooler weather, I wouldn't do that in the middle of summer, you know, maybe then make a batch of biscuits or a batch of uh, muffins or something else healthier. So then you've got things during Mm, the week. mm. Some people are really very organised and they'll do big batch cooking um, cook-ups. But just to have that little bit of extra preparedness, it just makes it a bit easier. But of course, anytime you go um, shopping with kids, there's always the nag factor. I don't know if you t- you and your wife take your kids shopping or yep, not. Yep, yep, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, this is really marketers, as you probably know, know that the nag factor for kids is a really important issue with a lot of products now. And it's not just food, like it's even things like cars and holidays. They market directly to the kids. Mm. So if you take your kids shopping, they are going to see all these things with cute, um, you know, uh, graphics and animations to things on them that they're going to want. Mm. So that is a real challenge. I know when I take my kids shopping with me, there's a certain tax. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Well, there is, you know, there's going to be something involved that they want. And, you know, I could be really mean and not buy anything for them. Um, but certainly there's always that. But in general, you know, the more that you can cook at home, the less you can eat that's processed, the better it's going to be for your, your, your wallet and the better it's going to be for your health and the better it's often going to be for the environment as well. But that's hard often with busy people, like I said. So it's mm. about, you know, being a little bit more prepared so that then that means you've got a bit more time to do that.
And you're a fan of the Aldi and Costco model? Um, yes. Um, obviously, it's really good to support local producers and local markets where, where possible, so not just supermarkets. Um, and I know it's often difficult when you've got foreign-owned supermarkets and some people feel very passionately about that. And I must say, while I do really enjoy my Costco membership, there are times where I sort of sit there and go, ooh, like, you know, um, it's just such an in-depth consumer experience. Uh, we were shopping at Costco just before uh, school went back and it was during that time where the bushfires south of Canberra, the I can never pronounce it, the Auroral Valley, mm, mm. was still very much in swing and we were at the shopping centre next to the Canberra airport and all the planes were coming back and forth, back and forth. All the water bombers. All the yeah. water bombers. And we're sitting there in Costco eating oversized ice creams <laughs> and it just kind of hit me that you know while it, it is a very cheap shopping experience and I got things I needed like um, my um, bulk flour for making sourdough bread and other things that our consumer patterns are really going to have to change to deal with with climate change like mm. I'm sitting right near there next to the airports where the water bombers are taking off there's no escaping yes. that yeah, and a lot of the uh, Costco model seems to be the notion that you go along to buy flour for sourdough bread and end up walking out with a flat screen television and a treadmill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having those sort of Im- impulse, high value impulse purchase- yeah. purchases are uh, a part of what they're trying to do. Especially um, with Aldi. So the middle aisles are really, I've, I've heard and I haven't um, independently verified this, that that's where a lot of their profit comes from. Right. And certainly with Costco, they make a lot of their money too from the membership because they know that they'll draw people in from um, the low quality goods but that said it can be very very useful for for consumers but Mm. it's also a matter of thinking through what you actually need and not getting caught up like you said in those extra things Mm. um, the extra electronics the extra things in the middle aisle but also the extra food just because something's on special if you're not actually planning to eat that that's not a bargain You've got a chapter in The Joyful Frugalista about uh, energy costs in mm. which you go through a number of different ways of, uh, of reducing what is uh, a significant share of household spending for a lot of, uh, lot of families. Uh, what are your tips for uh, cutting down on energy costs? Well, there's a lot of things, and, and I should say as well that I want to acknowledge um, my lovely husband, Neil, who did all the mathematical crunching for working out how much certain things cost to run. And, you know, it is a bit of a balance. Like, you can get really kind of paranoid about any form of energy usage um, to the point that, you know, it becomes a source of tension. Um, For example, I like to run my appliances off-peak, which means after 10pm, which then means I often forget to put the dishwasher on. Which then causes tensions the next morning. So, you know, sometimes I have to look at that and go, well, what is the cost savings with, you know, putting it on now while we remember versus after 10 p.m., um, those sorts of things. Um, and similarly, I like to run uh, my washing machine during off-peak times, but that sometimes then means it wakes my kids up if it's on early in the morning. So it's, you know, it's good to know. Some costs are non-financial. Some costs are non-financial. So it's really a good, I think, and important to think through, you know, what these what these costs are and to then mm. think about how that works in your family. In our case, we now live in a smaller apartment and that certainly has saved a lot of energy costs because mm. the apartment itself is quite insulated. So that makes a huge difference. Um, and, you know, the, the less you could you run your heating and your air conditioning, the more um, insulated your property is, the better to start with. And then it's just understanding, I think, how much it costs for a lot of your appliances to run. Like usually in our daily life, we don't think about it. It's like, you know, I'm running late to work, I've got wet hair, I'll just put the hairdryer on. Mm. That's fine, but if you know how much it costs and also what, you know, the sort of emissions are, then you can make an informed cost. Like I'll use a hairdresser dryer sometimes, but it's not part of my, my daily life. Mm. And same as when I boil a kettle, if it's, um, hopefully I've got the maths right here, if you fill it all the way up, costs about three cents to boil but if you fill it only to the minimum it costs one cents to boil so once you know that that it's mm. going to cost you three times more to fill it right up then you can make an informed choice when you're you're boiling a cup of tea or coffee about how much that costs and you had some amazing figures which surprised me about the uh, the cost yeah. of showering yeah. too which i i'd, I'd ne- never realized before um, all of the, those maths there, I can thank my lovely husband, um, Neil, <laughs> with. And actually, he's recently changed our showerhead um, in our apartment. It, um, 
was um, the plastic was eroding. He said it's uh, the term is atrophy, I think, when mm. it, it gets old. And he's changed it to a nine litres a minute shower head. But the thing is that, um, you know, a considerable bulk of our electricity usage in our homes, sometimes up to a quarter, is from heating hot water. So one of the simplest ways to reduce our electricity is just to reduce the times that we have hot showers or simply just not have them quite as hot. Um, for people who work and maybe have a shower at work, that's another option. Um, I like to think it's probably good to actually, you know, um, cycle in or use the gym or do mm, something mm. rather than just having the free shower at work. But <laughs> right, right. You're but, saving some money but not necessarily saving the environment by doing that. But, you know, certainly um, that's good. But, you know, the, the cost savings are, are huge. So, you know, from... Um, I'm looking at my book, thanks to you, but, you know, you can go from a 10-minute um, shower with an unrestricted shower head, which is going to cost about, you know, $2,708 a year to heat versus one with um, a nine litres a minute for a five-minute shower, you're looking at about 580 So, you know, there you're already saving about 2200 a year and all you're really doing is changing your shower head and reducing your shower time to five minutes. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's way bigger than I I had I had in my head, and you also had this uh, this uh, lovely notion of the upraise scheme mentality uh, that uh, that we in the middle of middle of winter we should think of ourselves as uh, as being uh, enjoying enjoying being cozy <laughs> and putting uh, putting on some warm clothes. Tell us about the, the paint the picture there. Yeah, so um, when I was at high school. My first foreign language was, was German. I don't speak much German anymore, but I had a student exchange at the end of year 11 um, to a lovely town in the north of Heidelberg. And Germans have this beautiful term in winter they call Gemütlichkeit. And I think there's a very similar concept now in other Nordic um, countries. There's a bit more that's been written, particularly about the Danish com- uh, concept, which is similar. And they really do rejoice in winters. Like, they just see it as a passing of the seasons. They'll use the winter time as some time that, you know, they'll take up, for women, you know, particularly they might take up knitting or other things. Um, and I remember with my homestay family um, sitting around listening to Beethoven and um, having some um, Black Forest cake, Schwarzwald um, Kuchen, um, and having, you know, candles in, in the house and just really mm. appreciating, well, this is winter and it's different. It's not the same as summer. We're not going to heat the house up like it's summer. We're just going to appreciate the fact it's winter. Um, you know, you're going to drink mulled wine and, and go to, you know, the Kritzkindmarkt and, mm. and just appreciate the coldness for what it is. And I quite like skiing, um, as does my husband and my, my dad, who's just come back from a trip to Neseco and he's all of, I think, 75, I think, still really enjoying skiing. And when we do go skiing, we enjoy that kind of alpine living. You, yes. know, you, you appreciate the cold for what it is. You like the warmth as well, but you don't wish it to be anything other than it is. Mm, mm. Uh, and you also talk about the uh, the value of just phoning up your electricity retailer too mm. and uh, getting, uh, getting savings there. It, that can be huge. Um, and a lot of consumers don't think they have the power, um, especially in larger markets, in larger capital cities. There's now more and more retailers, so you do have other options. So they know that too. So if you ring up and say, look, I'm just thinking about my electricity provider and wondering if I've got the most competitive deal, they don't want you to switch. Mm. They want to keep mm. your business. So just having that conversation, you don't have to be aggressive about it. Like negotiating doesn't have to be aggressive. Just ring up and just ask, am I on the best deal? What deal am I on? Can you do me a better deal? Um, it can literally save you hundreds of dollars and sometimes more. Yeah, I find it frustrating that uh, we need to make these phone calls. But uh, mm. if I think about the uh, effective value of my time for making that 10-minute phone call, uh, it's uh, probably the most valuable thing that I do every year. It most certainly is. And it's not just your electricity bill either. It's also, you know, a number of your other bills. Like insurance is another big one too. Like often people will get their, their premiums and they'll just pay it you know, before you pay it, like just do a bit of research online, see what other deal you can do, ring up your insurance company. Mm. So I've got a good history, you know, what can you do? And, you know, often there is huge flexibility there. Um, and sometimes brokers can help with that too, negotiate a better deal for you. Mm. So mm. rather than just sort of go, oh, well, I'm really busy, I don't have time. Like it's really worth just thinking about how you can do that. Sometimes some people find that, you know, with people who are working full time, maybe just having one of their annual leave days to do this kind of financial admin actually saves them 
can sometimes save them thousands of dollars when you think about it because it's all those funny financial things that you put off like renewing your electricity provider like checking your insurance like checking if your mortgage is still competitive all those sorts of things that you put off um means that you you're not competitive so if you make the time to focus on those things you know that that's enough money in there for a holiday (laughs) yeah well i remember taking uh literally a couple of years to do the job of sitting down and working out whether or not i was in the right investment plan for my superannuation fund Mm. and by the time i figured out that i probably wasn't uh i just shook my head as i looked back and worked out how much i'd lost by by being in an overly conservative invest investment approach given my age yeah. That's that's a good example too because superannuation seems so complicated. Mm. Like it really does. Like I still find it hard to get my head around um, my scheme. And there were some really um, some real benefits of my scheme that I didn't know about. That if I had known about earlier, I could have done things quite differently. And I don't know why it's so complicated. I think it's just it's very jargonistic. But thankfully now there's a lot more kind of publications out that compare different funds so you could look at their rates of return and work out whether it's right for you. But of course it's not just the rates of return, it's also you know how much they charge to manage it, it's also the insurances. that, mm. And it depends a little bit on your family circumstances too about what kind of product you want with that. Absolutely. Uh, you're also a great uh, great finder of deals. Uh, what are some, yes. Tell us about some of these websites which have, uh, <laughs> ha- have, have good deals for everything from uh, uh, buy- buying uh, clothes to uh, going out to restaurants. Well, I think there's a lot of these around and I think there's going to become more and more because e-commerce is becoming huge. So, you know, I quite like um, Shopback and Cash Rewards. So I have like a browser extension. So... If I'm going to buy something online, like whether it's something, I don't know, um, just trying to think, like a Groupon, for instance. So Groupon's another one. You can get a discounted, um, say, meal or discounted other things. It's a group buying site. You know, you might be able to get an additional cashback of a certain percentage through these other sites. So, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot, but the little bits all Mm. add up over time. Of course, if you don't spend anything at all because you don't need anything, that's the best saving. <laughs> that's the best saving at all. But there's certainly ways that you can do do that. Um, and I think e-commerce is becoming going to become more and more important and more and more significant. Um, and the speed at which things can come now, um, Amazon Australia was quite slow to get started in our market, but it's quite competitive now. Um, even here in Canberra, and, and the postage isn't as fast, but it's not uncommon for me to receive something a day or two after I've ordered it. Uh, you also talk about uh, entering competitions. You have a lovely story about a uh, former co-worker of yours who would uh, uh, enter competitions uh, with, uh, with poems each time. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on what the competition is, but when they say 25 words or less, you really want your... Um, your entry to really stand out and so there's someone I knew who used to write really really cute little poems which you can do with 25 words or less and they were were cute and they rhymed and they were lovely so he had a very good strike rate rate for winning things (laughs) seems like a good way of living sorry (laughs) even if you win no competitions well I don't quite have his knack for um, poetry but there have been quite a few um, with Canberra Weekly for instance they Mm. have um, regular giveaways and so if there's things I want and I won't enter things I don't want because I think that's just greedy and you know if I win it I'm I don't necessarily want it for instance if it's um um, a, a performance and I know I'm going to be out of town. Well, I know I'm not going to be there, so I'm not going to enter in the competition. Um, but just just enter, just do it. And I have a very high strike rate from theirs. I haven't won anything for a while, but usually I'll win about one or two a year. And so you never know. Yeah. You never know. You put in, you just never know. Uh, you uh, also t- talk about uh, some of the more delicate issues around uh, expenditure uh, when it comes to uh, it comes to weddings. Mm. Uh, the notion of uh, of an expensive diamond ring, which is sort of yep. entrenched in our society, and and a uh, a big uh, splashy wedding. Uh, tell us <laughs> tell us about uh, why they may not necessarily be uh, be great great expenditures. Well, I mean, it it depends really on in individual couples and what and what they want. But it does worry me that a lot of young women, in particular, are often saddled with the debts from this big day. Mm. Um, you know. It used to be a time where there used to be a time when the parents of a couple would pay for a wedding. But these days, it's more and more common for young um, for young couples to pay for a wedding themselves. 
and often it's a woman who's taking out a personal loan to do that more so than than the man like often he might you know invest in things like their future property they might leave, live in but she'll invest in the wedding and then of course if things happen in the marriage she's left with that debt it's sort of not really recoverable it's um it's quite difficult but I think there's a lot of pressure on young couples. So, you know, I don't want to be judging them in any way, uh, shape or form. It, it's very difficult because they feel this pressure to conform to this Instagram perfect view that they see mm. all their friends having and they don't want to, you know, embarrass anyone. They, you know, brides have so much pressure on them. I've been married twice and both times, even as a, you know, more mature woman who you would think I wouldn't care about this. You really worry about what you look like and how other people are going to perceive you. Mm. It's very vulnerable space. Um, on my second, uh, um, second time I got married to my lovely husband, Neil, um, in September, 2018, we budgeted for $5,000. In the end, the wedding came in at about 4,000 and my dad contributed to the entertainment. So our out-of-pocket was about 3,000. And we had about 200 guests. So he comes from a big family. His mum is one of 10 and they're all from the Canberra region. <laughs> so he's got 48 first cousins and most of them live around here. Right. So we made a decision early on that either we would elope or it would be big because there's a big family. And we felt the family was important to us. So we went, okay, we're gonna go big. Um, and we had a lot of unusual things like we arrived in a horse and buggy to the hall. Uh, we had a magician. Uh, I had a um, beautiful satin dress I'd had I'd bought in Antwerp. And it sounds very, very um, la-di-da and glamorous. And you might think, well, how on earth did she do that? But there are a number of ways, and I guess the big thing was we went out to our community and we said to our friends and family, look, we really don't need gifts. Like second time round for both of us, we're both downsizing and decluttering as it is. We just want your presence rather than presence. But if there's some way you'd like to contribute, if you want to bring um, a plate of food to the hall, we'd love it. If you've got another, you know, skill or something, we'd love to hear that. So we had, you know, friends sing at our wedding, play the piano at our wedding, I, you know, had a whole range of different things. Uh, so that's kind of how we did it. And the end result was actually really quite participatory. So one friend who actually managed the hall committee, so I'm glad she liked the wedding. I was a bit worried. <laughs> but she said she felt it was almost like the Amish tradition of, you know, the house raising before a yes. wedding. Because yeah. people came together. But there is an art to doing that. Like if I just said to people, well, I want a six-tier you know, tier cake and I want it to be a certain way and I want it like now. That, that would have turned people off. So it needs mm. to be space to understand that you would respect whatever contribution that people may or may not want to make um, in a spirit of love. But I think most people, when someone gets married, they want to help and they want to contribute. Yes. They want to be part of it. They just don't want to be sitting as a guest. I guess I'm speaking from my own experience. I don't want to just be sitting at a table and sort of not really feeling connected to the couple and sort of saying it's really beautiful and I can take photos maybe, although these days a lot of um, a lot of couples don't like their guests to be taking photos. Like I really want to be part of this. I want mm. to sort of look around and go, I made that dish that is being served or I, you know, painted this. Like my aunt, for instance, is a graphic designer and she um, asked to do the, the chalkboards at the wedding and she's just had all these beautiful caricatures. It was just so funny. <laughs> It sounds the perfect wedding, Serena. <laughs> to be able to invite so many people yes. uh, and to not feel as though you're breaking the bank in the process. Mm. I guess the key for you was getting away from the idea that you have to use outside caterers who charge $200 yeah. a head yes. and therefore cut your guest, your guest list down to the bare minimum to make it work. I mean, it depends on what couples want. You know, we were lucky that um, my husband's part of a rural community, so he used to live out in Hoskinstown. Um, he's still part of the rural fire service there. So when we were thinking about the venue, we really wanted to bring it in that community. So we were, you know, part of that community and so therefore we were able to use that local hall. Mm. It wasn't expensive and it was it brought people together in that way. Um, I was also part of a faith community, so we got married at Kipax Uniting Church, um, other, other side of Canberra, but, you know, that was significant to me. And we said to our guests, look, we understand things are often different, difficult, with that distance um, so come to however much of it that you like so friends for instance that had young children who lived in Canberra 
they often, many of them only came to the ceremony. Mm. And like, that's fine because I know what it's like with young children. It's, <laughs> it's a big ask. <laughs> and Kivex is so wonderfully welcoming with, uh, with kids too. It is. It's, it's a great so, space. It was great. So it was great space and, you know, it wasn't like they had to sit down for long periods of time. And then with the, the hall and the community, we said to the local community, we understand you may not want to drive out from Hoskingstown to Kivex and mm. back. If you only want to see us for the reception, like that's fine as well. And if you don't want to stay that late, that's fine as well. Mm. So I think just making it welcoming was, was big. And then the other really big thing was that it was the NRL grand final that night and uh, my husband managed to hook up the TV. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we made it very so clear So if you don't want to listen to the speeches, you can just watch the, uh, the grand well, final. Well, it is a big, big thing. Like if you're really you know, yeah. into a grand final, I mean, the last thing you want to be doing is missing it <laughs> and being felt torn so that, you know, you didn't have to choose one mm, or the other. Mm. Uh, in staying with the realm of relationships, yes. you also talk about the uh, the importance of uh, talking about money in a respectful and uh, an engage, engaged way. How does how does money talk work work well in a relationship? Look, it's so important because it's not just the money; it's the values. And you you think that you meet someone and they've got the same values, but that's not always the case. Um, and so there's lots of things you may not necessarily realise at first, like particularly like, you know, if you're raising children together, which I'm not with my, my second husband, although I do, we do have children from both our previous marriages, just not together. Um, you know, to have a, a sense about what your values are in terms of who's going to be the carer or how much time might be taken off, all these things, that, like they're really deep emotional issues. Mm. And I think what's really required is high levels of trust. Like, you'd think it would be obvious you talk about money, but, you know, in for some couples, you know, they, they, you know, might be together for many years, you know, they're obviously physically intimate, they might even have children, might do all these things like purchase a house, but they still never really talk about money because mm. it's so taboo. And it, it comes with so many overlays of different things that they've picked up from, from their childhood. Like, if their parents were arguing about money all the time, you know, just... Talking about money brings up this high level of anxiety before you've even yes. got to talking about, you know, what the issue about money is. So it, it, it is a very emotive and a very difficult area. Um, but I think the thing is just to normalise it, just to sort of start talking about it, you know, early on. And in my case, I was a frugalista and I was already writing about money. So my husband, Neil, didn't have a choice. I was like, well, this is what's important to me. You know, I really feel it's important to me to live a frugal lifestyle. I'm doing that from in terms of my values and what's important to me. Mm. So that's kind of like how I am. And thankfully, he's very frugal at all as well. So that, that kind of meshed really well. You write in the book about your experience of uh, family violence mm -hmm. in 2014 and uh, not only what that meant for uh, you physically, but mm -hmm. also what it meant in terms of the controlling of, of finances and, and how you uh, think through the financial side of a separation. What did you learn from that? Look, it's a very difficult space and it's still not really well understood. And I think people have preconceived ideas about who would be a victim. You know, and the reality is that there's, you know, women and men um, you know, and children can be victims of family and domestic violence from all sorts of backgrounds. It's not confined to uh, lower socioeconomic or, or anything. So it's like anyone can really be subject to that. And, you know, you may not, you know, I certainly didn't expect my ex-husband would, that this is what had happened. I mean, I didn't marry him thinking this was going to happen. Like it was, yeah, like when I met him, I had no idea this is how things were going to pan out. But I guess the thing that I learned too is that where there's a relationship that's characterised by control and it's not equal, financial control or coercion is always going to be an element of that. So, and it's not always as overt, like, you know, we mm. often think of it's the case where, you know, the woman's at home, she's not able to work, she doesn't have any money. Like, that is true. That often, that does happen, but often it's more subtle. Like in my case, I guess we were heavily in debt. We had 10 investment properties and I probably would have liked to have paused about seven um, and sort of built up a bit. And just for various reasons, we were at that time fairly indebted. So the thought of leaving at that point was actually quite scary because mm. I really wasn't sure how I was going to come through without, without everything just going like a deck of cards and just collapsing. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who are, you know, really in financial distress who unlike me 
didn't have a good job and were probably even worse off. So I have to say once again from a position of privilege that I had a good job, I was middle class, I, I was in a fairly good situation. Uh, but definitely it's much harder. It's, it's, it's much harder, I think, um, to leave when you've got financial worries as well. There's no running away money you can just mm. pick up and say, well, you know, I'll just splash out on the lawyers. It's, it's really easy. It's, it's much more difficult when it's at that level. Um, I think too and um, and not I think so many resources as well like you know there are for some people but you know in my case you know I still had to pay for the mortgages I still had to pay childcare um, which as you probably know Canberra has some of the most expensive childcare in Australia if not the mm. most expensive lawyers fees which were then about $500 an hour which are now more expensive um, and I lost $100,000 of my superannuation through it as well plus, you know, the cost of selling properties at the wrong cycle of the market and a few other things. It was a very expensive process. Um, and, you know, there were times where I wondered where, whether I was going to lose everything that I had worked so hard to, to build. So it is scary. So, you know, I guess when people think, well, why doesn't she leave? Well, you know, financially, maybe she can't. Like, if I'd really known how much it was going to cost me at the time, would I have... Would I have made a different decision? I don't know. Um, I think I needed to get out, and I know I did. Would I even still be alive if I didn't get out, to be honest? Because, you know, it was sending my anxiety through the roof. You know, would I have self-harmed because of, of that? I don't mm. know. And I guess at the back of my head too is because I'd spent a lot of time in Taiwan. Had I been in Taiwan, I probably wouldn't have been able to leave and divorce anyway. So it is a blessing in Australia that we do have the ability to leave an abusive relationship. It's not easy, but like, at least you can legally. Yes. You're uh, this year participating in what you call the Joyful Giving Challenge. <laughs> tell, us, uh, tell us about uh, uh, the Joyful Giving Challenge and how it fits into the life of a, uh, of a joyful frugalista. So the challenge is to give away 366 items. It was going to be 366. So it was going to be 365 until my seven-year-old son reminded me that this year is a leap year. <laughs> Somehow you picked I a tough year to do it. So a whole extra extra idea. So there's a lot of people who've decluttered, I guess, thousands of, of items. So you might ask, well, what's the big deal with 366? I guess there's a few things I wanted to prove, and that was that when we're talking about decluttering, you know, oh. you really do have to start one item at a time. Like a lot of people say, oh, mm. I've just got so much stuff, I don't know where to start. Well, you've just got to start like one item at a time. And the second thing is this sense that, you know, I felt sometimes with the minimalist kind of movement, it's all sort of a bit self-centred, like I feel so much better when I get rid of the stuff that I feel no longer gives me joy and I'm so much happier now. But like what happens to your stuff? Like how do you ethically and sustainably make sure that the stuff you don't want anymore goes to people that are really going to value it? Mm. So I think post... Uh, the Marie Kondo um, craze in 2019, we saw op shops so overwhelmed, they just weren't taking things anymore. And now I'm certainly not saying don't support your op shops, but you've got to think critically about do they need your stuff? Is mm. your stuff in good condition? Is it stuff they're going to be able to resell? And if not, where are you going to give it that's meaningful? Um, and it's harder than you might think. Like nearly all of my friends say that they've been inspired by me now and so that they're downsizing and becoming minimalist. So I sort of rock up with all this good quality stuff and say, would you like this? And they're like, oh, no, no more clothes for me. No more books for me. <laughs> I'm um, off clothes this year. <laughs> so it is a bit of a challenge. And through this, I really want to look critically about how we make our stuff work for others in mm. the community. So looking at innovative ways to give in a meaningful way. It's not just stuff too. It's giving of yourself and giving of your time. Yes. Uh, you, uh, this, the Joyful Frugalist is your first book. Mm -hmm. um, what, did, um, what did writing the book teach you uh, and, and how did you go about it? I know you, you thanked the ACT Writers' Centre Center in the end. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you find that process of, of turning a blog into a book? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, I'm probably one of these crazy people who just did it. I had a, a book proposal and it was accepted and then I set myself a ridiculously short time frame and I just kind of did it. I think I wrote it in about four months in the end. But the ACT Writer Centre is really quite an amazing resource. Like I know most states and territories do have writer centres, but we're very blessed here in the ACT. It's a particularly good um, centre. 
Um, and for, I think, around about five years, they had a grant from the Australian Council of the Arts to run this hard copy program uh, for emerging writers. So I was very privileged to be part of their 2015 cohort. So it wasn't just for Canberrans. In fact, mm. most of the participants were from interstate. And I remember on the, I sort of put in a manuscript. It wasn't actually about this. It was about something completely different. It was about post-baby confinement in Chinese culture. So 30 days inside um, eating offal and not washing your hair. Like I said, completely different. Fascinating. Like really quite randomly different. Um, and, you know, I sort of put in this, you know, draft words thinking I'd never get in and I was and then I met all these incredibly talented writers and had this um, imposter syndrome moment of going oh my goodness everyone's writing memoirs I don't even really know what a memoir is (laughs) I don't really belong here but I think you know writers do have a lot of insecurity and I know you're a writer yourself I'm not sure what your process is but you know I think it's one of those things you've just got to black out that negative self-talk and just keep going for about a year or so there, I didn't go to writers' festivals or you mm. know, listen to other writers, not because I didn't want to support them, but I felt that if I kept hearing about all these brilliant, talented, amazing, articulate, uh, well-read writers, that I would just kind of get writer's block and stop. So I just kind of put my blinkers on and just kept going. Serena, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Mm. I'd probably say be authentic to yourself. Like looking back now, I had a lot of crazy things I was interested in and they didn't really kind of fit with the typical stereotype of what I thought I should be. Um, You know, like I was, I guess, a high achieving student, but I love things like speech and drama and cooking and all these other sorts of things. But I felt, you know, I needed to study hard, hard and go to law school, which I did do. But I wish I'd had the courage to sort of say... Well, actually, really, you can do whatever you want. You can be quite creative and you mm. can have that courage to do that. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Mm. I'd have to think about that. I don't think I've really become that cynical <laughs> you got, that I've stopped believing in things. <laughs> you, uh, you got rid of your car. You, did you change your view on the, uh, the importance of having a car? Well, we still do have a car. It's just my husband and I have one car between us. Um, but for a while, I couldn't drive his car, car because his car was quite larger. It was manual, scary, scary. Um, but more to the point, it was um, a dual cab ute and my um, feet couldn't reach the pedals. So for a, a long time there, I was mainly reliant on him. Um, it's interesting because... When I lived in Taiwan, I used public transport a lot. They had an excellent subway system, their Mm. MRT system. They actually had a really good um, bicycle borrowing system that was um, organised through um, Giant Bicycles, which is a Taiwanese company as well. And it was just really easy to get around. You'd walk, you'd cycle, you'd use Mm. subway. Here in Canberra, it's actually much more difficult. Like I live in inner city Canberra. I can walk or ride to the city, to CBD. Coming here today, I use the light rail. So you would think it would be easy to get around. But then there's odd things like, you know, uh, dentist appointments, the other side of town. I'm visiting my in-laws who live out um, in Rossi, just past Hoskins Town. I do find it still very difficult to get around without mm. a car. Like, I think you can sort of manage if you're in an inner city kind of bubble. But it is very difficult and that does concern me as we are looking at a new climate change reality and aware that we have to change our mode of of transportation. It is still really difficult, I find at least, to get around without a car. You write in the book about signing up to GoGet. Have you you found uh, sort of car sharing programs pretty useful? Um, I did initially. I don't use it so much anymore because now I have a car that I can drive. (laughs) (laughs) But it was certainly very useful in the first kind of six months and certainly when I was writing uh, this book. It was just nice to know that as I got rid of my car, which I gave to my dad and saved us about $5,000 a year, roughly, just not just not having it there um it was just gave us that me that reassurance that if i needed another set of wheels there was something close by when are you most happy when am i most happy cooking i think cooking doing tai chi or writing Mm. 
Do you have a word target when you're writing? Um, in theory, but in practice, not really, because I okay. always, once I actually start, I actually exceed it. Um, years ago, I was privileged to meet Tom Keneally when he visited Taiwan when I was there, um, who you're smiling, so I know yeah. you also know that he has lots of wisdom and he talks a lot about 500 words a day. So that's kind of in the back of my head, but I'm kind of a little bit not structured enough. <laughs> right. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Probably Tai Chi. I find it makes a huge difference, not just physically, but also emotionally. Is that a practice on your own or are you part of a Tai Chi group? I'm part of the Tai Chi group here in Canberra, the Tai Chi Academy. So I've been doing that um, a number of years. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, are you, do you go for the, uh, the, the, the very low sugar ones or uh, no. super dark? <laughs> no, no. Normal chocolate then. We're talking guilty pleasures here. Yep, so. yep. <laughs> Um, definitely the high fat, high sugar ones. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. And uh, finally, Serena, what person or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Yeah, I guess I felt that I had sort of my frugality tempted. In my book, I talk about um, Mr. Red Sports Car. So someone that I was, I went, you're smiling again. It's before I met my lovely husband, Neil. So I was dating someone who had about four times my income and, you know, lived on the surface, a very affluent and very flashy life. And I felt a little bit caught in that, a bit like, you know, Cinderella at the ball, like I shouldn't really be there, mm. I'm not really good enough in, you know, my secondhand gown. Um, and I guess when I decided to end that, not knowing that there was other stuff going on, I really, you know, questioned what my values were and I sort of went, mm, you know, I know this frugal stuff, it's not really that sexy on the face of it. But you know, it's actually really quite important to me. Like I actually really think that living within my means, respecting the things I have, living sustainably, they're actually values that are actually really important to me. Um, and to be honest, I wasn't sure whether people would get it or not in the book. <laughs> so it's really reaffirming that they do. That's perhaps the most fascinating answer I've ever had to that, to that question because almost always people talk about, uh, you know, the Dalai Lama or their grandmother yeah. or some other person that they greatly admire. But you've, you've chosen somebody who uh, you didn't admire and who, uh, rem but, who, but who, by the way in which they lived, reminded you of what, what was important, of sustainability and giving yeah. and, and joy. It's, I guess because at the time I really doubted myself and wondered, yeah. you know, I felt a bit like secondhand rose and felt a bit a bit daggy and a bit old-fashioned, you know, a bit like someone's nana, I guess. But I love my nana. She's wonderful. She turns 99 in June. Wow. Um, but, yeah, so I guess there was all that self-doubt. And then I just sort mm. of went, well, you know what, that's, how, that's what's important to me and that's who I am, so I'm going to run with that. No, and it's a, it's a great example and a great reminder that people who we aren't simpatico with can still teach us an awful lot. <laughs> exactly. So, Yes, thank you very much for, uh, for sharing you. your wisdom on The Good Life podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.